Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 25 of The Keith Law Show. My guest today will be Dr. Angela Duckworth, the author of the book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, which I strongly recommend. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and has done a lot of other things that are great. She's here to talk to me about what she really means by grit and how that word can be used and maybe misused, particularly in the context of the athletics world. Some administrative stuff first. I did have a new post go up on August 7th, my third entry in my series of scouting notebooks based on the season so far, looking at interesting young players. I covered Joe Adele, covered Jesus Luzardo, Luis Patino, Brandon Woodruff, and a couple of other players, and uh, we'll keep going with those posts. As the season progresses and as we continue to see more young players coming up, I just uh, have been working on a piece that will run at some point this week. On Spencer Howard's debut yesterday for the Phillies, I actually will say I thought he pitched a lot better than the final line score would indicate, as well as Ryan Castellini. We actually had a prospect trade in the last few days. The Giants picked up Luis Basabe, the good Luis Basabe from the White Sox, which I think is an interesting way to use a spot on the back of your 40-man, although Basabe is going to be out of options soon. I don't know how that's going to affect his near future with the Giants if he's not ready to play in the major. So we'll see on that. Would also like to mention again my book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, is out now. It has been out since April from HarperCollins. Thank you so much to all of you who've bought it. Continue to see lots of nice tweets from folks who've bought it, read it, enjoyed it, recommended it. Really appreciate all of that. Uh, Feel free to continue to recommend it to your friends now that we actually have baseball back. Maybe there's a little more interest in reading about baseball and baseball and life in this particular, in the case of this particular book. Also, thanks to all of you who've subscribed to the podcast, left positive reviews, especially on iTunes. I've seen a lot of your comments, your five-star reviews there. Also really appreciate that. It helps spread the word and helps us find more of an audience. And now, before I get to my interview with Dr. Duckworth, a quick word from Indochino. My guest today is Dr. Angela Duckworth. She is the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance scientific insights that help children thrive. She's also a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, faculty co-director of the Penn Wharton Behavior Change for Good Initiative, and faculty co-director of Wharton People Analytics. She also is a winner in 2013 of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and she's the author of the book that I highly recommend called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Grit is the reason I've invited her on the show today. Dr. Duckworth, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here, Keith. So I have read your book, and you do delve a little bit into the world of sports there. But for listeners who haven't read your book or seen your TED Talk, which I also recommend, explain grit in the way that you define the term. So I do delve a little bit into sports because I am really interested in what makes, you know, like Tom Brady, Tom Brady, or Steph Curry, Steph Curry. And I'm interested in non-athletes who are also excellent at what they do. I'm interested in Michelin-starred chefs and uh, the kids who win the spelling bee. And one thing I think they do have in common is this combination of passion and sustained over really long periods. I mean, years and in adulthood, you know, decades. Um, And I think that combination of passion and perseverance is not the same thing as talent, uh, but but just as essential, if not not more arguably, um, uh, to becoming great at anything. And so 
one thing that I went in reading into reading your book, I went in as a little bit of a, of a skeptic, and we'll talk about why in a moment. But the question that I had going in is how do you measure something that sounds so subjective, particularly when we're talking about hiring candidates where it's you just have a resume and an interview maybe, or in the sports world where we're think, talking about drafting players or signing players where you might have limited exposure to the to the people themselves. Yeah, I think in sports, it's often called the intangibles, right? Mm -hmm. Or yep. a lot of coaches like that term. And I think the reason why people say like, the does feel like character or, you know, fortitude or, you know, grit, as I just said, like, it does sound like something on or you wouldn't be able to measure objectively. I mean, as a psychologist, I will tell you that most things can be measured. They, they, they can't be measured perfectly, but you can get some gauge. And in my research, I use the grit scale, which mm -hmm. is a questionnaire that's, um, you know, it's pretty fakeable, but it's got items on it like I finish whatever I begin. Um, that's for perseverance. And it has items about, you know, sustained passion, which are really items about sustaining your direction or your interests over, over years. Um, I have a graduate student who's a former NFL quarterback. So he went through the combine. I know, I think I have the only PhD student in like, I don't know, at least in my university who is like a former, because not that many NFL quarterbacks. Um, right. uh, and, and he would say that, um, you know, it is not easy to tell like who has grit um, at like draft stage, for example. But I think we both believe that you, you, we could do something, right? Like as opposed mm -hmm. to not trying to measure any of these quote unquote intangibles at all. So just following right on that point, within the world of baseball, a lot of teams have cut down on their scouting operations, essentially arguing they can do this off of video and use some of the analytical tools available to them or some just new data sources to replace what scouts used to do. One argument I've made is that scouts are still better than automated systems at evaluating all these things you're talking about, character, makeup, what we do call intangibles. So if you were talking to a set of scouts or even a scouting director, what kind of advice would you give them on, say, you're you're going to talk to players? How would you try to come up with some kind of evaluation or a proxy for grit? So I'm going to channel my inner Danny Kahneman, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is to say that I will try to speak in the voice of the Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist who, you know, his first job uh, as a psychologist was when he was in the Israeli army. And he had a job that was like a scout. He had to be mm -hmm. uh, to officer. And he has the following advice really for anybody who's in this kind of position, um, uh, which is that the, the problem that with, that scouts might have is that you, when you have a very strong visceral intuition, like this one, man, what a natural, like they're so like, I just, I just know it. Right. It's, it's like in my bones, like that intuition, you know, may or may not have some signal there, but there's a lot of noise and it's very hard to ignore and like suppress your strong intuition. And for example, say you stats or, you know, you get all this information that is against what you viscerally feel he has found that like human beings are just so biased by their strong intuitions and he particularly um, finds that that you you fall prey to what's called confirmation bias which is you have a little hypothesis um or a strong hypothesis about like i, I like this guy and then you ignore all the information that you get that is contrary to that so his advice to scouts would be that you have to come up with a system which is a discipline that um like works against um, not to say that you, your intuitions are always wrong, but just works against them being too uh, strongly biasing of like all the other information. So he would rather have, say, three, four, or five scouts come to independent evaluations about a player without talking to each other, right? Without trying to like talk each other into a particular view. So they imagine it's like sort of secret ballot. 
And then he would say, when you get the information, you have to decide in advance how you're going to like put it together. So you could say the most experienced person, we're going to like, we're going to double weight that opinion. You know, this person's a rookie scout. We're going to half weight that. Whatever it is, you can't change it like post hoc. You can't be like on the fly, like, oh, well, let's just ignore him today because I really want this player. So I think those are two good recommendations, multiple evaluations that are independent, and then some disciplined, systematic way of information. Having spent a couple of years with the Toronto Blue Jays and, and having been in draft rooms and in those discussions, I can verify that these things happen, that we're going, we're just going to ignore this little bit of information because we've decided we want this player. No, and I, yeah. I'm sitting there, right? No, 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 no. That is not how you make decisions. That's not how you make good decisions. You might still have bad outcomes, but can we at least try to make good decisions, good processes? Yeah. It's all about the process. And, 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 you know, I do this, I mean, I know the science, but when I'm hiring, I mean, mm-hmm. I am terrible at this. Like I decide <laughs> within like microseconds, whether I like somebody mm-hmm. or not. And it just, it, it, it biases the entire conversation. It's almost like you're not even having a 65 minute interview. You're having a two minute interview with 63 minutes of confirming your initial hunches. So right. yeah, uh, I, I think, I think most of the teams are figuring this out. I mean, it's a little money ball like, but it's more just about like applying a system. It does, but I, but I would agree with you. And there's research on this showing that the human judges who are experts at what they do, like, like scouts are also like, think about psychotherapists, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they are very good and better than like a computer at making certain judgments about what, what's motivating this person, et cetera. The key is how do you make use of those human judgments in a systematic way? Um, so I don't think it's like throwing out all the humans. I think it's like applying a system so that the human beings can actually, you know, get all that good information and, and make it usable. That makes sense. Um, so I wanted to get back to you. You brought up the word intangibles, which I was thrilled to hear because it's thrown around a ton in baseball, particularly I assume true in other sports. And I've always had a, a bit of an issue with that word because within baseball, at least I believe people use intangibles or, or other char- or characteristics that you'd put into that umbrella as a sort of coded language to praise white players because most scouts and particularly most baseball executives are white men and to denigrate players of color you know black players aren't winning players or they're not cerebral players there's an old saw about dominican players can't dominican position players they don't become patient hitters because quote you can't walk off the island which you know oh my god i've never heard those terrible oh yeah it's terrible right i remember as a Right? As a kid, I was like, oh, that's funny. It's clever. And then suddenly you reach a point you're like, oh, that's no, really racist. That's right? That's that really racist. And, and of course, not true. But as I was reading your book, too, I'm thinking that's exactly the kind of thing that she's talking about where this is – a it's not – it is not an innate talent. You, you plate, plate what we call plate discipline, which is just a, a catch-all term for all aspects of a hitter understanding balls and strikes or recognizing types of pitches – People in the industry, and I'm guilty of this too, we often treat that as innate when some players clearly have the ability to improve that. So I've sort of talked a little bit more than I intended here, but my specific question for you is, you know, how do you make sure that when you're discussing these, I'll say less tangible things. Yeah, or these qualities or these personal characteristics or, yeah. That we're not not falling prey to, to biases, racial bias or other kinds of biases. You know, it's so interesting that you bring this up because um, I've heard this idea once before, and it's from my graduate student who hasn't yet studied it. But he said, so 
this quarterback turned PhD student is named Danny mm-hmm. Southwick. Um, he's, by the way, quick to remind me that he didn't play for all that long, but still even playing at That's all for uh, more than I did. Yeah, well, yes. more than I did. too. So, <laughs> um, so he actually wonders about the word talent similarly, like like intangibles and talent, like it's kind of got a little mystery to it. People use the word a lot. You know, this one's got talent. This one doesn't have talent. Um, you could say the same thing about intangibles. And he wonders whether um, certain like biases could be hidden in there, right? It's like, oh, well, since we can't really measure it um, and since we we all just have a gut feeling about what it is but it's important but it allows you this kind of maybe too much freedom uh, to make decisions about individuals where it's really just like a way of you know hiding an actual say racial bias or some other stereotype that you you know have that's you know making you judge a person so I, I, I think in general language that is you know, used in a way where like people aren't ever pinned down on like what exactly you mean can be problematic, you know, for lots of reasons, including the one that you just um, suggested. I don't know of any research on this yet, by the way. So it's still, you know, but, but I think we all have this, you know, I, I think it's a very good hypothesis. It's interesting you say that too, because when I was with the Blue Jays, we had a you know somewhat retired, longtime executive. He'd been a coach and manager. Um, he was in his late 80s and he loved to anytime somebody would use a nebulous term like that, he would he would love to say, well, what what does that mean? What what is yeah. average? And we all just thought sort of thought he was just being a troll. Yeah, nobody was being good. But actually, you know, you're making me think. Well, that you know, maybe he was providing a needed service for the conversations yeah. by making people actually be more explicit as opposed because the thing I I can't stand is you know it's it's a guy with bad makeup. Well, wait a minute for bad makeup itself means kind of nothing to me like did he commit a crime is there you know is he or does he say have a a drug problem that is affecting his performance on the field or is it that hey his coach didn't particularly like like him him, right yeah right like you know you know i think uh i think there's a general societal trend a cultural trend which i think is a good trend Mm -hmm. which is for like things to be a, a little less hierarchical, kind of like, you know, the coaches get to make all the decisions, the players basically aren't told anything, they just have to do. Mm-hmm. I see this all areas of society where people are saying like, I want to be heard, I have a voice, um, you know, my opinion matters. One can imagine that as the seismic shift happens culturally, that not everyone likes it, <laughs> including right. some people who used to be able to like fill the whole room with their voice. Um, like I said, I think it's a very positive trend. But yeah, I mean, I am the head of this nonprofit called Character Lab, mm-hmm. and I'm using the word character the way Aristotle did, like all the things you need to do to live a good life, you know, be grateful, be curious, be kind, be generous, be humble. But and it's a big but. Um, Character is also been criticized as a word that is so nebulous that, again, you can hide, like, oh, that person doesn't have good character. Like, you know, they've got everything else, but they don't have good character. We're not going to let them in. And I and I, I think that's a very legitimate criticism. I haven't figured out what to do uh, mm-hmm. about that, like what Lucian is, but I think it's a very fair criticism. Yeah, I've wondered, and this, that I won't take us too far on this tangent, too, but if you could have scouts evaluate players without them knowing the player's race or name, for example. I feel like I've seen these uh, tests of, 
uh, where they give stacks of resumes to people in a, in a corporate environment and where they've just changed the names. The resumes are essentially the same, but one name is sort of ethnically ambiguous and one name might be seen as a clearly black name. Yes. And that they grade, the, they will often score those resumes, they score those candidates as less desirable. Yeah, I think some of that work was done by an economist named Sendel Mulanathan. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there have been other studies. I think it's a pretty reliable effect. And like it just demonstrates really like we have all these you know connotations these like assumptions about you know the way people are going to be because of their gender because of their uh sexual orientation because of their ethnicity their race so you could it would be great you know that is what they do for orchestras right Mm -hmm. like you of course audition behind the screen obviously you know not possible to do in exactly that way Mm -hmm. for drafts Right. So I I don't know the answer. I do also think that, you know, some of this analytics, I mean, like you, I don't think we should replace human beings altogether. But some of these analytics are also can at least reveal bias. Right. Like if you have a more systematic way, like, for example, in artificial intelligence, there is there are ways to like see whether the, the algorithm is biased, you know, against any subgroup that can be measured. So I'm hoping that increasing awareness of these things, like it motivates people to like find better ways um, because so much of this bias is unconscious. There's an axiom in baseball that players are often better off if they failed at some point before reaching the major leagues, maybe in the minors, maybe in a little bit in, say, in college, so that the first taste of baseball adversity they get doesn't come in the majors. Hmm. Do you think that idea, and I mean, I know you allude to some of these things in your book too, but do you think that idea is supported by the evidence around stress and and how people react to when they do have control over sources of stress to when they don't versus when they don't? I mean, um, the, the, the evidence is popping to mind. So yes, I have that intuition too, right? Um, you know, partly because, you know, human beings, you know, we don't get good at anything until we have to. I mean, none of mm-hmm. us do. It's not, it's not that one or two of us are lazy. We're all lazy. You know, nobody, Nobody <laughs> learns anything until you, you have to learn it. So consider all of the things that we've all had to learn. Uh, I mean, if you're old enough to be listening to this podcast, you also have learned like how to handle things like a really bad day or like, you know, you full on screwed up, like just it's your fault and you did something bad. We've all had that experience. I've had that experience. When that happens, that's when you learn how to deal with it, right? So maturity happens, you know, because you have to mature. And I do worry about those, um, you know, as you know, I call them fragile perfects sometimes, like these people who have had such a, you know, unbelievably unmarred life that because they were always number one and the best liked person and, you know, dot, 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 the first time it happens, they have so little practice, like that they're just not very good at failing. Um, The evidence that comes to mind is actually um, studies of rats, right? So if you have... Uh, adolescent rats, which means they're only a few days old, but anyway, <laughs> rat years or in yet rat time cycle, and they have a challenge experience. It's like really hard, but they overcome it. So like, you know, you give a rat some aversive rat experience in your lab, but you kind of rig things so that the rat can, you know, escape. So say, for example, you know, it's some experiment where the rat is getting shocked, but the, the rat can do something and then and then situation, um, the rat will grow up and actually be more resilient to uh, stress and adversity later on. And I think it's the same intuition that many parents have about like, you know, their kids going, not something abusive, and certainly not <laughs> something with electric shock, but like going on outward bound and like coming back and being like, wow, I didn't think I could do it. It was really hard and I did it and I'm a changed person. And I, I think that that intuition, I have that intuition as well as a, sci- a psychological scientist. In 
the book, again, for folks who haven't read it, you distinguish between talent and grit and argue that both are important in different ways. Your argument's more nuanced than that. But if you were running a sports team, the question I would ask is, should we be selecting for talent? Uh, Should we select for grit? Do you believe, can you select for talent and then try to cultivate grit? Or is it some sort of blended approach of the two? I know it's going to be like cheating, but I'm going to use That's both okay. and twice. And really what I think is, <laughs> so so I define talent as the rate at which somebody gets better at something. So imagine there's mm-hmm. two, two people on the baseball field and there's like one hour of coaching and practice. And the person who gets, you know, twice as, you know, improved, like in that same hour as somebody else, I would say, okay, that person has more talent defined as the rate at which they improve. Then there's grit, which is like how hard and how long are you going to work at something, right? And um, uh, because you're committed and because you're resilient, et cetera. So I would both, uh, you know, select for talent if you can figure out a way to do that reliably. And I would find a way to select for grit, among other things, by the way. I would try to develop both talent and grit. And that might seem weird to say that I want you to develop talent and develop grit as a, I think you can think of both talent and grit as being malleable. I mean, if talent is the rate at which you get better, right? You could just ask the question, is the rate at which a player gets better, is that fixed? Like, is there ever a world in which like that player for the same hour practice actually will get even more out of that practice? And if you start to really like that, you know, octogenarian, awesome, you know, owner or scout or whatever that you were telling me about, like, Mm -hmm. if you really just use logic and you just ask the question common sense like do i think that's true i think it is true and i think the best teams are selecting and developing everything i love that answer i mean that is it a philosophy of player development that maybe there are some teams using it and not talking about it in baseball but to me that is it would be a bit of a paradigm shift in how teams draft and particularly develop players are they doing selection are they not doing development in um in professional sports in your um, development has individualized development is a fairly new phenomenon in baseball, at least. I, I won't speak to any other sports, but definitely within the last 10 to 15 years, where we've seen much more, uh, more teams doing individualized player development plans. Each player, we identify strengths and weaknesses, and these are the things we want you to work on. Maybe here are some goals for you for the next year. What has really accelerated in the last, let's say, three years or so is as we've had new technologies to measure more granular aspects of player uh, it's not even production, like measuring spin rates on various pitches that pitchers are throwing or measuring the launch angle of a ball off of a hitter's bat. We really couldn't measure that until about the last five years. And we couldn't measure it for younger players until the technology became cheaper in the last two to three years. Now that stuff mm-hmm. is guiding more of these player development decisions and may lead to just what you were just talking about too, be figuring out, Uh, the malleability of the talent and also which players, maybe some players have more malleable talent than others do. I'm, I'm guessing that some do. And, um, uh, and Anders Ericsson, who Mm -hmm. probably know his research. I mean, he passed away actually suddenly and um, unexpectedly um, in his early seventies. It was last month. Um, Anders, if you were having this conversation with him um, might be skeptical. There really are big differences between, say, two players' malleability. Like, he was really a proponent of, you know, there's so much potential and there's so much plasticity in everyone. I take the probably more common view that, like, I just assume there's going to be some difference between, like, Michael Jordan's, you know, malleability when it comes to, like, learning basketball skills and my malleability. 
so I didn't agree with Anders entirely on that. But but here's one thing I did agree with him um, on. He's a you know wonderful collaborator and friend, and we um, argued a lot. But I think one thing we agreed upon is that you know when people spend a lot of energy thinking like what are all the things I can't do? Like, what are all the things I wouldn't be able to do? Cause I'm, I'm not double jointed like Michael Phelps or like, you know, you know, the eyesight of, you know, this like great hitter mm -hmm. or something. They waste a lot of time, you know, not working on things that they can change because so far as Anders could find in his lifetime of research, he was like the world expert on world experts. Um, is that he couldn't find a domain in which people really hit a ceiling beyond which they really couldn't, go farther. Um, and so there would be these things called phantom plateaus. So if you're, say, looking at somebody's like hitting skill, right? Like at first they can't hit anything, like they don't even know how to hold a bat. And then like, you know, then they do. And so like you can, you know, imagine that you could have their skill development. What would often happen when you do this in like chess or whatever, like that you'd hit a plateau and then people thought like, oh, that's the limit. Like that's as far as this person can get. And maybe my plateau is lower than your because you're more talented. But, but what Andres often found is that when you train appropriately, he called it deliberate practice. When you really, um, you know, zone in on one area to work on and you have a coach and they're giving you feedback and you're, you're calibrating and you're coming up with like new mental models. He didn't he, failed to find a plateau that couldn't be broken. So it's really an interesting and, and, and fairly radical position that like pretty much almost anybody could learn almost anything. Um, and I might not go as far as Anders would, but I would agree with him that like the potential for human beings to learn is just like astonishing. My guest today has been Dr. Angela Duckworth. She is the Rosalie and Egbert Chang Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the author of the wonderful book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Dr. Duckworth, thank you so much for joining me. Enjoyed that. Thank you, Keith. That's all for the show this week. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks to Dr. Duckworth for joining me as a guest. I also wanted to mention for those of you who, especially if you don't follow any of my board gaming work, uh, Gen Con is an annual convention. It's typically held in Indianapolis. It's the largest board gaming convention in the Western Hemisphere. It has last year at 66,000 unique attendees. They moved it online, obviously, because of the pandemic, and also chose to move the Writer's Symposium, in which I typically participate on a few panels online, and filmed those. And the one I participated in is available for free on YouTube. It's called Social Media in Tumultuous Times, and particularly focused on what obligations, if any, writers might have on social media, particularly in terms of social justice topics. This was a concept for a panel that was conceived in particular in response to the resurgence in interest in Black Lives Matter and to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. So how might you conduct yourself, choose to conduct yourself, but also feel a responsibility to conduct yourself on social media? I thought it was a really interesting panel. I will confess, as the one straight cisgendered white man on the panel, I kind of think I had less important things to say, um, but I was the only one other than the host. So if you don't want to watch for me, watch for what everybody else had to say. I thought it was, uh, I enjoyed the experience, but I also thought it was really informative, even for me just listening to what my other panelists had to say. That's all for the show this week. Thanks everyone for listening. Stay safe and wear your mask. <laughs>